Welcome to the Springin' Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Parr, and this is the place to be for all things equestrian lifestyle, horses, entrepreneurship, as well as so much more. This is your insider's edition to what it's really like living in balance with your passion and your business. I'm so excited to have you guys here with me, so come along for the ride. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. If you're listening as this is airing, I hope you had a wonderful weekend. And if not, I hope it's almost the weekend for you. Um, I'm really looking forward to this episode, mostly to you guys hearing it. I've heard it, obviously, but it was a great interview with Tom Dvorak of Friday Hill Dressage. He is an international dressage rider, and he's developed a myriad of horses through to the Grand Prix level. He's also represented Canada at the Pan American Games, World Cups, and World Championships, um, and also has many accolades as a coach with his FBI junior, young riders, amateurs, and even developing other professionals. Um, He's done many clinics, and from what I understand in my experience and what I've heard, he's a really great coach. So I wanted to get into his style and his philosophies when it comes to Um, coaching riders. He was great at articulating his methods and some things that he likes to do as a coach. I got into um, also exercises around uh, dealing with emotions as a rider. That was great. And then also, of course, exercises with the horses and developing young horses through to the Grand Prix level, what his program looks like, what his management looks like, and also, of course, as always, what his business looks like. Um, That has obviously changed over the years, so it was great to hear the progression and the way that they've kind of turned it into something that works for them. Um, I always love hearing about that. He was very open and he gave great perspectives. I actually had Tom on because... um, A couple of you guys mentioned his name in your feedback. I think I got a couple Instagram messages about you should have Tom on. And so I'm listening. If there's anybody else that you'd like to hear from, please reach out. You know, I only see within my own circle and my own exposure. So it's really important to me that I'm bringing in people that aren't necessarily in those circles. Um, You guys know I'm not a dressage writer, but I like to have dressage professionals on here. And yeah, we talked about a bunch of different things. Uh, and it was a great interview. So I'm looking forward to you guys hearing it and also reaching out to Tom and let him know that you listened. I will leave his contact in the show notes. And as always for me, you can message me on Instagram at spring and or my uh, email is spring at gmail.com. But screenshot this if you're listening, share it in your stories. I will reshare it. Um, and also then more people can come to the podcast and listen as well. Thank you guys so much. I will let you get into it. I also wanted to thank Starline Equine Bodywork for the support of this episode. They are committed to preparing horses both mentally and physically for the demands of training and sport, and it has become the go-to bodywork practice for top equine athletes in Southern Ontario. In addition to working one-to-one with bodywork clients, Starline believes in the empowerment of horse owners everywhere by teaching them safe and effective bodywork techniques for their own horses at home. Starline offers several programs in the Learn With Us section of their website, including easy mobilization and soft tissue release techniques, and focus on stifles. I've used both these programs. You guys have heard me talk about them a lot. They're very helpful with all of the common issues that we have with our horses. 
when it comes to strength, performance, and rehabilitation. Starline Equine Bodywork is thrilled to present their kinesiology taping course, Step Up, which is already closed for enrollment, but you guys can join the waitlist on their website, which is starlinebodywork.com. You can visit the website for more information on bodywork services, educational resources, and any other upcoming kinesiology taping courses. I'd like to thank another one of today's episode sponsors, Hote Equestrian and Co. They help equestrian employers and job seekers through high quality, accessible products and services. They offer recruitment services for equestrian employers and job seekers through a job board, employment database, VIP services, and continuing education. They also offer business management solutions for accounting, schedule management, social media, and record keeping services, as well as hosting an essentials online boutique, including jewelry, accessories, houseware, skincare, and products for your horse. Hote is committed to highlighting the people and values behind their products, as well as using eco-sustainable packaging. You can learn everything there is to know about this amazing company on their website, www.hotek.com. That's H-A-U-T-E-E-Q.com. So, uh, yeah, my name is Tom Dvorak, and I'm a dressage trainer and currently living in Hillsburg, Ontario. And, uh, yeah, I started riding when I was about... 12 years old. In fact, I, I didn't really start my my career in riding. I was actually, uh, I mean, I grew up in Germany, I guess I should say that. And uh, I started vaulting, which is gymnastics on horseback. That's how I got into horses because uh, my parents were not willing to buy me a horse because they were not horse people at all. But I grew up in a small town in Germany that was a very horsey town and they had a local riding club. And our neighbors had horses, so I was always kind of horse fanatic for whatever reason. It was in my blood. All I could ever think about was horses and watch movies with horses in them. And uh, just horse crazy. And I have no idea where that came from. And uh, so in any case, uh, eventually my grandmother actually bought me a pony because my parents wouldn't do it. And uh, there was a pony for sale in our local riding club with saddle, bridle, everything package deal and I ended up with that and that's how my riding career got started. Um, in the beginning I did a little bit of jumping as well as dressage but uh, the club was more geared towards dressage and I had a horse that was not the most willing creature for jumping so I kind of got turned off the jumping kind of quickly I guess and stuck with the dressage. So uh, yeah I did that in Germany until I was 16 and then my family immigrated to Canada uh, in 1982. And uh, when I first came here, I had to leave my horses behind for a year because I had no idea where to put them here. And dressage really wasn't very popular in the early 80s, late 70s. So uh, any case, it came over about a year later when I found a barn that I could keep them at. And then uh, at that point, I started training uh, sort of a weekly or bi-weekly basis with Chris Boylan and... Uh, I uh, competed at the young riders level and I made the, the national team in 1985. So I was a member of the silver medal team. Um, and yeah, my, my riding sort of evolved from there. At that point, never thought I was going to make it my career, but uh, somehow I just got busy riding horses and people asked me to help them. And I ran a little bit of a riding school in the barn where I kept my horse and uh, just kind of evolved from there and then um, yeah I met my wife and then uh, she was a horsey person in one of my uh, clinics that I taught and um, 
we got to know each other really well and then obviously got married and uh, we lived up in Aurelia for a few years and ran a small business, uh, training business out of her parents' barn. Uh, but it didn't have an indoor arena, so we were just mostly working there in the summertime, and then in the wintertime, we were taking our horses to Barrie, and uh, we lived there for quite some time, uh, training, and uh, yeah, and then I got my first horse to uh, compete uh, on the team with, uh, from a, through a client, and uh, that was in 1990, that was my first big uh, sort of break, I, was, I went to the World Equestrian Games in Sweden in 1990, with a horse called uh, World Cup. And um, so that was my first big debut. I was only 23 at the time, I believe, uh, 24, I think, 24. Um, it was kind of a young start. And it was actually my first season Grand Prix. And I just, I had a few good shows and made the team. And I didn't even know what was happening at the time. <laughs> it happened so fast. But that was a great experience. And then, uh, yeah, I went on to, uh, do lots of national stuff and then again went to uh, qualified for the Olympics uh, in 96. I took the same horse there to Atlanta. Uh, so that was a great experience. Um, yeah, and then went on after that. Uh, I competed at the World Championship for young, for young horses rather. I took the Canadian bred horse there, uh, twice represented Canada at the Pan American Games and both times came home with a silver medal. It was a leading rider both times. Uh, both times finished fourth individually, just missed out on an individual medal. Um, yeah, so that was most of my riding career. I've had lots of young riders that we've developed here at our um, riding facility. Uh, we've been here in Hellsburg since 1980, oh, 98 rather, and uh, we've had numerous uh, people on the, on the national team representing juniors and young riders uh, on the national team. Um, won quite a few medals with, 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 with the students. Yeah, so we're just continuing developing riders here at the barn and uh, at all levels, uh, you know, amateurs all the way through to, uh, you know, young riders or also, uh, you know, adult amateurs that wanna, that are very serious about competing. Um, yeah, and uh, my wife and my daughter, Alex, uh, we're running the training facility. Hmm, did I leave out anything? I don't think so. <laughs> Try to make it as brief as possible. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Absolutely. So when did coaching come into the picture for you? Was that just a natural progression after just being involved in, in so much competition as a young person? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, we also have a... a, a, a uh, sorry, a, a working student program. So we have developed lots of riders that, that have come here and uh, we're young riders and, um, you know, they would train with us, but work for us also for a year or two. And quite a few of those people end up being on the national team. You know, it was just a natural progression, I would say. Uh, just, yeah, I mean, you end up teaching young kids and young people, which I really enjoy teaching. And yeah, it was just, you know, it's just part of, like you said, it's a progression that you just uh, work into. And I really enjoy coaching and, and teaching as well as riding and training my own horses. So, Absolutely. As you mentioned, you've developed a lot of young riders to the national level. So that's why I mentioned coaching because um, I think you're downplaying your skills as a coach, also as a rider. So um, what when you talk about going to 
um, or qualifying as such a young rider, did you ever deal with lack of self-confidence or feeling like you questioned yourself or have any doubts around your, your riding abilities at that time? Um, myself, yes. I, I think there was a time uh, sort of when I made the transition from uh, young riders to, the, to our big national team, the international team. Uh, but I did seek some help. Like I had a, a, you know, a sports psychologist that helped me through that. So I, you know, did that quite a bit until I felt confident enough that I could manage myself. And uh, so now, you know, for the most part, yeah, we get a bit nervous sometimes competing depends on what kind of a competition you had, but I think I have enough tools. Uh, I do have enough tools to, to manage the pressure and, and be able to focus and, 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 you know, get on the job mentally. Yeah. That's awesome that you mentioned a sports psychologist. Um, because a lot yeah. of people deal with that and, and it's very interesting to know that that's something that has helped you develop the tools to deal with those feelings. And um, the other thing I wanted to ask a little bit about is, of course, you had a, a quite a long career and there's a lot of obstacles and things that happen, of course, being in horses where it can kind of knock you down a few pegs. So we recognize the hard work that it takes to be successful in the industry and in the discipline what keeps you motivated or connected to the passion that you have for it when we kind of hit those speed bumps along the way? Um, well, I mean, I think in the big picture, I mean, I love horses, you know, uh, I, I love riding. Uh, I love being with the horses. Um, and you know what? Yeah, we've had some tough breaks uh, where, you know, it's hard to get, dust yourself off and get back up again and get back on the horse and, whether it is you lose a horse or, you know, you, the horse injures itself before a major game or, I mean, all kinds of things happen. We've all been there. Um, you know, the, the, to get a horse actually to, to a major competition, a lot of stars have to line up, you know, between the health of the horse, your own health, you know, the, the ownership of the horse. I mean, there's so many variables. Uh, all these things have to come together at a certain time and uh, that's not always so easy to, to make that happen. But uh, yeah, no, it's tough. I mean, there's probably more tough breaks than there are good breaks in this business. Um, uh, and I think we can all agree on that. Uh, it's a tough business mentally, uh, for sure, because it can knock you down pretty fast and it's hard to get up. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of the time on this podcast, I talk to professionals about the balance between turning their passion into a business that sustains them to then campaign themselves professionally. And I think that this is a hard balance for people being able to make a profitable business work and run, and then also continue to develop themselves as a rider. What's your experience been like with that? Um, well, it's tough when your, your, your passion and your, but it was once your hobby is also your job because, you know, I think we all, end up, uh, uh, you know, it's easy to burn yourself out, you know, because you're, you're working so hard and then you're you, you, at the same time, you're trying to develop yourself and you're still trying to learn skills. I mean, today I'm still learning and I take opportunities whenever I can to, uh, to have a lesson or, you know, to watch something online or whatever. I mean, we, we all can still learn 
you know, a lifetime is long enough to learn all to know about horses. Um, but um, I lost my train of thought just now. Um, yeah, we're just talking about the connection between, like, obviously oh, you're running your training facility, and then yeah. you're on the other hand you're still trying to develop yourself professionally. Yeah, so it's a tough balance, you know. I mean, they also go hand in hand, you know. Uh, but it's, it's a tough balance to find to work to look after the business, make sure the clients are happy, but at the same time you want to have some me time and go out and compete and, and train yourself and learn. So I think that's a tough balance, but it's something that's constantly going hand in hand, I would say. Yeah. Is there anything that um, you've learned over the years having run several different small businesses and training facilities, that kind of thing? Is there any services that you lean towards as far as profitability when it comes to like training, coaching, competing, sales? clinics like how does your business run in the most efficient way for you uh you know what i think what's important in all businesses to be diversified a little bit you know not to just focus on only one thing so yes we do all those things that you mentioned we we, we train we do clinics you know we we go to horse shows we compete uh we sell some horses you know we're not a sales firm by any means but of course we do a little bit of selling and buying as well you know, maybe developing some young horses and then selling them. So I, I think the key is to be, you know, versatile in a way, but we have a diversified business, not just to rely on just lessons, let's say, you know, yeah. um, you know, boarding, you know, I mean, there's no, I mean, we all know there's not a lot of money made in boarding, but it's a, it's a means to have horses here. You know, it's the, the, the training is where you then end up, you know, making some money on that. But because uh, the boarding business, like boarding and looking after horses is very time consuming and you need a really good team to make that happen um which we have luckily here we have a great team between alex and uh and ellen and we have a, a young lady that's been with us for a few years naomi um and myself we you know it's it's a super reliable and a, a, a good team so that is also very important i think everybody needs needs to have that because if you don't have that then it's really tough to run your business. Absolutely. Sounds like it's a bit of a family affair. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, switching gears, would you mind walking me through a typical program structure, for instance, a, a young horse in training versus a horse at the Grand Prix level in the span of, let's say, a week, for example? How, how much riding time? What things are you working on? And how does it differ between the two? Yeah, it's very different. I mean, uh, a four-year-old horse, you know, we, we start them usually around three and then uh, once they get four years old, I usually work them usually four days a week, a young horse, maybe five. Uh, you know, they don't need to work super hard because they're still growing at that point and developing. It depends a little bit on the type of horse too, how, you know, how, how mentally he's ready to work and, and physically also because some horses mature a lot later than others. And you have to kind of watch yourself that you don't get too carried away with a really gifted young horse. You know, I think we all have to be careful that we don't overface a young horse. And I think, I, I believe young horses need to grow up. I mean, they get turned out uh, on a daily basis. I mean, all of them do, it doesn't matter what age. Um, yeah, and young horses that includes hacking, you know, spending time outside. And, uh, you know, until they're about five, I'm not really that serious and that, you know, driven with a young horse. 
I mean, they, they can do some leg yielding, you know, they can do transitional work, but it's not, not, not a lot of pressure really on the horse. However much he wants to give me, that's what I go with uh, until they're about five years old. And then we get a bit more serious about the training. And then uh, uh, a Grand Prix horse, okay, that's a whole different ball of wax, if you will. Um, I mean, they have to be super fit. I think uh, the big thing, once the horse has learned all the exercises, like PF massage and, the, and, and tempi changes, uh, at that point, you know, what makes your Grand Prix horse better from the time, let's say it's 10 to when it's 15 or 16, is really fitness, strength. And, and, and through that, you will develop confidence in the horse that he can do the job better. So we do a lot of uh, exercises in the ring, of course. We also do some pole work. Uh, we use trotting poles. Uh, we also do hacking. Um, you know, we do quite a bit of that. Uh, that really keeps the horses happy mentally. And we are really lucky that we have some hills here. So hill work is always good. And the footing is excellent. Um, you know, we also try to ride them on, on different footing, not just on, on the footing that we have inside or the type of footing that we compete on. But I think to make a horse's legs strong, they have to go on different kind of footing like grass or maybe sometimes a little bit different kind of sand. And then of course, also the type of footing that we're competing on. Um, yeah, and fitness, really a Grand Prix horse needs to be really, really fit and strong to do a good job. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, is there anything, especially too with not only dressage horses and horses in general, when they're competing at that level, I think um, soundness is also a huge factor. Is there anything that, or elements you like to integrate into your management or the horses day-to-day -day that you feel make a difference in their health and, and soundness or well-being? Yeah, I mean, soundness is something that we're all, uh, you know, hoping the horse stays sound. And you know what, there are so many factors in keeping a horse sound. And I come back again to, you know, we have to be careful that we, how, how we bring the horses along, because if, if we don't get the horses physically strong enough to do the job, and, and we overface them, or we over drill them, or ride them beyond their point, you know, when horses get tired, when the muscles get tired, then we have a risk of getting leg injuries, like tendon and leg issues, because they take the brunt of it all. So, you know, yes, we have to push the horses to get strong, but we also have to make sure we don't overtrain because that's when we get injuries. Um, so I think it's really important, you know, your horse and how far you can go with it. Um, but again, for me, you know, having the horses, you know, fit and strong makes a big thing about having them stay sound. Also confirmation plays into it you know, um, doing regular maintenance, you know, uh, we usually have our vet come out twice a, twice a year at minimum, especially the upper level of horses and just check them over whether there's anything wrong or not. You know, do some flexions, make sure we catch things early. We know all the horses need maintenance, you know, that you have to do before they actually get hurt. Uh, you know, there's a lot of maintenance you can do. We do chiropractic work, massage, uh, you know, we do all kinds of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah uh, uh, with the horses so I mean there's so many things you can do to prevent injuries uh, uh, nowadays yeah I love that you mentioned that um, because even having the vet out like biannually to check the horses and do some flexions without having any reason to I don't think anybody has yet mentioned that and that's such a great point to be made about preventative um, just kind of like catching things before they happen in order yeah. to preserve the horses. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Is there any specific exercises that you like to integrate or you find yourself coming back to, let's say in our ring work with horses for building proper balance? And when I'm talking to a dressage rider, I'm going to get into, you know, proper engagement and well, any, any horse in general learning to balance. Um, is there certain things that you like to incorporate into your day-to-day -day rides that you find really make the big difference? Yeah, I do uh, a lot of transition work with the horses, uh, whether it's transition from one gate to another or within the gate, you know, and, and when you train the Grand Prix, was what is ultimately important. It doesn't matter whether you do two-track work uh, or suppling work or transition work, you know, you really have to make sure that the body of the horse is working properly, you know, that the horse is properly carrying itself, you know, is properly using his hind end so he can engage the hind leg. And he's probably carrying himself and probably pushing himself forward, which is basically an engaged hind leg. Um, and I think that is the hardest thing to learn as a dressage rider is to, to really make sure, you know, there's one way to do shoulder in and then there's the one, another way to do shoulder, which is where the horse is probably carrying itself. And he's, he is in balance and you have, you know, lots of impulsion, yet not, no tension. You know, all the, those things are really important. I think that's a really important uh, uh, thing to to think about it is also hard to teach, teach a like a rider and, and also to teach a horse to, it's like when you work out, you know, you, if you work out and do it in a sloppy way, you can work out all day long, it makes no difference. But if you actually have a personal trainer that tells you how to exercise properly, so you actually use your core properly in your body and all of a sudden, you know, you can build muscle when you use your body properly, you know, so that's really an important point. But I do love transition work. I love two-track work. I do a lot of shoulder in uh travers um lots of circles lots of bending lines uh uh you know and lots of variety you know not just sticking with one exercise and i'm also a believer in giving lots of breaks in between like i do some exercises and then i give a short break like even if it's just a 30 second break for the horse to recover and then i go at it again uh because it's important that the horse gets those little breaks in between you know again that you don't get to the point where the body gets so tired you know, that you just physically can't do it anymore, even if you could, you know, and I see that sometimes where riders just get a little bit carried away and they want to get this done and make it perfect and the horse just can't do it anymore because it's just too tired. Yeah, yeah, so good. Um, you led me right into my next question in mentioning that it's extremely hard to almost teach that type of feel, I would say, as a, as a coach. And um, I wondered if you could speak to your approach with students, um, maybe some philosophies you have around teaching riders to be able to feel the way that their horse is moving underneath them and perhaps be able to identify whether it's correct or not or engaged or not? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple of ways to do that. I mean, for one thing, I think when, you know, the, in, the, in the perfect world, when you have a person that's, you know, 15, 16 or 14 years old, it's, it's to put them on a trained horse, you know, so they first can learn the movements on the horse that already knows the movement uh, uh, rather than trying to train the horse with the rider along, that makes it a very difficult and long process. You know, I think that's really important. Um, and what I do is if, you know, if a, if a rider struggles developing the horse properly in a certain exercise, uh, then I usually get on the horse and try to get the horse going correctly. And then I put the rider back on again and see that they can feel a difference. And then we work on how to get there because I think you can't get to where you're going unless you know what that's like when you're there, you know? Yeah. So, 
that, that is really important. That needs to be constantly, the writer has to know, okay, this is what it feels like when it's correct, you know, and this is when it's not correct. And then, then we work on how we get there, you know, by themselves without my help riding the horse. But in the beginning, I, you know, I, I often will get on the horse if they can't get past that point and just try to set the horse up properly so they can get back on again and then feel like, oh, okay, I get it now. I see what that feels like. Yeah, for sure. Um, in your experience coaching, I'm sure like a vast array of different levels and people, is there any common walls or obstacles that you find riders specifically in dressage rub up against? Is there something that always kind of happens as riders are trying to progress that you notice? Uh, sort of a common thing? Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, I think just like horses, a lot of riders have different strengths in what they can do. You know, some riders can ride top better than canter and some the other way around. Um, you know, I think uh, not necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes what is hard, everybody gets to a point where they get frustrated. So mm -hmm. mentally, you know, they get to a point where it's really difficult and it's hard to, you know, teach people through that when they get frustrated, things don't work. And, you know, and then the horse obviously gets also frustrated. And then that can sometimes, for me, that's one of the hardest situations to coach a student through when the rider gets frustrated and the horse gets frustrated and then the two of them are just not working together anymore. They're not clicking anymore. At that point, you know, you got to find a way to break that either by doing a different exercise or sometimes just stopping and doing starting in the next day. You know, yeah. sometimes that's, I find that probably the hardest and everybody hits that wall where they just get frustrated. They get frustrated with the horse themselves and it's usually never the horse's fault. It's usually comes through the rider's frustration, you know, that the horse becomes frustrated. And then uh, just that, that's sometimes a tough situation to coach yourself through. Yeah, such a good point to be made, because like you said, I think everyone probably runs up against that. And it's yeah. more important of, OK, how do we move through it instead of just continuing on? Um, so great point to be made. What I wanted to move into a little bit was um, you know, what are the specifics when you're looking at a dressage prospect uh, that you are, are searching for, whether it's maybe shopping or you're just helping a client um, or if, you know, it could be kind of an ideal world. What are the characteristics and qualities that you're on the hunt for when you're looking for a horse that's hopefully going to make up a very good dressage mount? Mm -hmm. You're talking just a young horse or? I would say... <laughs> It's hard, right? Because I think there's a lot of differences depending on what yeah. you're looking for. Um, but in an ideal world, if you were looking, let's say, for a young horse that you're hoping is going to take you potentially, or you're going to be able to take it through to the, the Grand Prix level, what qualities are you looking for? What build are you looking for? Expression, movement, if you can articulate those things. Um, people are always interested in hearing um, because you have so many years of experience and people just develop that eye over time. And I'm sure you have as well. So anything that you can kind of contribute to that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for me, of course, there are a lot of factors in, in this. Um, for sure, the temperament of the horse is probably most important. You know, you got to have a horse that's, that's willing, uh, you know, a horse that has to be uh, energetic, yet it has to be, you know, sane, if you will. It can't be so hot that you can't ride it, but it has to still be 
you know, it has to have the will to work. You know, uh, you have to have a horse that's very willing. You know, it, it can be a horse that has perhaps, you know, not a, not a rollover type attitude, but it has to be still a good attitude that when it's challenged, it's happy to work with you rather than against you, you know. Uh, I, I personally don't like lazy horses. Like for me, they have to be electric. They have to be light, you know, sensitive to the aids, uh, which is not for everyone, especially for the more amateur type riders. But for me to look for a horse that I want to take all away, it has to be that. You know, it has to have a good confirmation. You know, it has to already, when you see it go, look like it's going uphill, like it has to, a certain amount of self-care already because if you have a horse that's really croup high and overbuilt and wants to go downhill then already you're you know you're fighting against what you're trying to do which is get the horse to go uphill uh, for me the horse has to has an excellent walk uh, and, a, and, a, and a very good canter and the trot you can always develop that's the easiest get to develop um, it has to have some ability of course but it does not need to be the outstanding gait I think a lot of people get blinded by the trot when they're looking at horses and then realize that the walking canter is, you know, either really tense or not clear in rhythm. And that is a lot more challenging to correct than it is a trot that may be just a good trot that you can make quite, quite fancy over training. Uh, but the canter is really hard to correct. So it's the walk. And uh, yeah, you want a nice type. If it's attractive, uh, that's a bonus, of course, if it's the right, you know, pretty tie, pretty head, all those things. I mean, in an ideal world, that's what you want, um, you know, and, and the perfect markings and all those things would be also nice. But uh, I don't write on the color, I would say, yeah. you know, it can be gray, it can be a chestnut, it can be black. That really is not such a big point to me. And for me also, like when I buy a young horse, I mean, we've bought fools and, and yearlings and two-year-olds, but... Ideally, I like to sit on a horse yeah. just to get sort of the feel of the horse. And that for me is important. Like when I sit on the horse, I'm right well comfortable with the horse. And I feel like it's already trying to work with me and, and it's happy with me. And I'm already, you know, that, that also for me is a big deciding factor. You know, you have to really get on the horse and right away get a good feel from the horse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, difficult picking something out that is that young because there's a lot of things that change <laughs> all the way. Yes. But th that's great. I always kind of get nitpicky and ask um, if you can articulate what a good walk and canter generally looks like. Like, what are the factors in that movement that you're looking for? Well, what I'm looking for in the walk is a nice four beat clear, marching, relaxed walk, but not lazy walk. Okay, that's always a big thing, you know. To, to know the difference between relaxation and laziness you know relaxation has a good amount of positive tension in it so you don't want the horse you know it was kind of a super long walk but it's lazy and it, you know and and it's just kind of not really using its hind leg and you can tell it's just it's still a clear four beat it's probably a really nice overstep but it's lazy you know you want horse with activity personally i don't like the walk too big because a really big walk with a slow rhythm is really hard to collect. You know, when you collect a slow, big walk, that might be a, a nine for an extended walk or a lengthened stripe, and you collect it, and it's slow, the rhythm gets really slow, it usually has a tendency to go lateral, and then you're already in trouble. So I like a walk that's, it's a good walk. If I can get an eight on an extended walk, I'm happy. You know, but it's a walk that is easy to collect and has to have a nice, naturally quick rhythm in it without hurrying, you know, and has to have a nice quick hind leg, because if you want to get, you know, on transitions to PF, 
you have to be able to get the horse nice and short and quick. Otherwise, that transition is almost impossible. Uh, canter, same idea. It has to have the three beat, you know, nice uphill tendency. And also not, not a big, slow canter. Like it has to be, again, by nature, a little bit quick. But still a clear three beat and not tense, you know, not a tense canter. It has to be a nice, yes, a nice canter through the body. And I think this is a big point for me. When the horses move, they really have to move through their body. Like the whole body has to be involved, not the stiff back and just the legs are going or the back swinging, but the legs aren't moving. You know, there's all these kinds of different, you know, uh, uh, ways for the horse to move. But for me, a horse has to really use its whole body. And then, you know, it's really using itself. Uh, so in the canter, it's clear three beat, nice uphill, and and also look for that both leads are more or less the same. I mean, there's always one lead that's a little bit better than the other with every horse, but you know you don't want one to be not not nearly as good as the other. Then you know there's already some balance issues most likely, or you know if it's natural if it's cross cantering a lot, you know that's also not a good thing for me. Uh, you know if you watch them running free or or even on a lunch line, if they're cross-cantering around constantly and they're comfortable with that, it's not necessarily something I look, you know, I like. And then the trot, clear three beat, again, it has to, it has to have some cadence to it, like some swing, but again, not too big and slow. Like it has to have the tendency to be a little bit quicker, but still, you know, swinging, not, not, not a quick tense trot, you know, and, and, and you know, I don't know any other way to explain it, but the horse has to really move through its body. Like the whole body has to be involved, the back, the neck, um, you know, all the joints have to articulate when it's moving. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think those are three good gates in a horse. If you can find a horse like that, let me know. I'll look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, no, that was super in-depth. And I I think it was really well said for people to envision it because it it's helpful um, to anybody listening, but also just to know specifically what you're looking for as somebody who's really well educated in, in dressage and having a horse that's going to be able to do that. Um, like you mentioned symmetry and like positive tension and not hurrying or major tension, but just yeah. its whole body. Yeah, a lot of horses can look fancy when they're tense. <laughs> you exactly. know, somebody shows me a horse and their tail is up. I'm like, yeah, just let it relax. And then I'll look at it, you know, because for that moment, they can all passage around if their tails are up and they're all tense. But I like to see them when they're quiet and, and calm and see how they move then. I yeah. love that. Yeah. No one's made that point yet. And it's such a good one to be made because like you said, when the adrenaline's rushing, then they're completely different than their baseline. So, oh, such a good point. Yeah, okay. totally. Um, moving on, what do you have any current mounts that you're honing in on and you're focusing on yourself? Um, do you have any specific long-term goals? Yeah, I've got a, a, a few uh, at, at the moment. I've got um, I've got two horses uh, that are at the Grand Prix level. Uh, one I've already shown Grand Prix, and uh, the horse's name is Cyrus, and uh, and he's owned by Carla Barr. And then I have another horse, uh, Eva Salinia, who's actually owned by uh, by us. Uh, and uh, he's very dear to me. He's actually a full brother of a horse named Viva Salieri that I showed at the Pan Am Games a few years back. And we unfortunately lost him uh, to Colic when he was only 12. He was a starting scrumpy career. But this one is his full brother. And I'm quite, uh, yeah, quite, quite enjoy riding him. Yeah. And then I have uh, a really nice seven-year-old uh, that's coming along. Um, uh, and then I have another 
eight-year-old, they're both at third level, the seven and eight-year-old. One is actually a Frisian stallion that I showed this year, who's actually quite a, quite a gifted horse. I quite enjoy riding him. He's not your, your normal Frisian in the sense that uh, he's got three uh, great gates and an excellent canter. So uh, he's quite exciting. Um, and then I've got a nice five-year-old that I competed this summer. So I've got a, a good number of, of horses that are sort of coming up uh, at, at various ages. Absolutely. What does your, that, that's quite a few. What does your day look like? I know that it's not, uh, every time I ask anybody who's involved with horses, it's never the same and it's never typical, but I still ask the question, um, you know, what does your day typically look like during the week? How many rides are you doing or what kind of work are you doing? Um, well, I usually come to the barn early and, and feed in the morning because I kind, kind of like being on the ground in the morning and uh, sometimes help out a bit with the chores and then usually get on my first horse around eight o'clock. Uh, either I have a client usually that comes early, I teach her because uh, she goes to work after, um, after she rides. So I usually teach her first and then, then I try to ride my upper level horses first. So I'm still fresh and uh, they take a lot more focus than the young horses. So I tend to ride the more trained horses in the beginning and then work my way down to the younger horses in the afternoon and uh, do some lessons in between. A lot of my lessons are end up at the end of the day um, because people come after work, you know, uh, a lot of adult amateurs. So they usually come, you know, four o'clock on. So we spend the evening teaching. Um, so yeah, so usually I try, that's how I try to do it, but you know how it goes, the vet shows up and the blackness yeah. shows up and the things get mixed up. <laughs> but definitely Absolutely. on a good day, that's how I do it. Is, uh, start with yeah. my uh, upper level horses and kind of work, work down with the age, if you will, and the level of training. Yeah, no, it just, it definitely, I'm sure never ends, but that's, that's still a lot of riding. Um, you have had some, well, you've represented Canada, you've shown in some really at big venues, huge competitions. Is there any moments that stick out to you or achievements um, in or out of the competition ring that really feel like were defining your career or that sentimentally stick out to you? Oh, that's a difficult question. There's lots <laughs> of moments. I think, uh, you know, as a coach and as a writer, I mean, uh, I think every time you represent your country and you win a medal, I mean, that's a special moment right there. Absolutely. Um, you know, and when, when you have students, like especially young riders and juniors, and, and they end up on the podium, I mean, I'm, I'm the proudest coach there is, really. And, uh, you know, because you, you help them through their struggles and their good times and all of that. And, uh, you know, I really enjoy those moments to, when, when, when they do well and they end up also meddling on the podium, you know. Um, I have lots of special moments with my family. I mean, I love, you know, uh, helping my daughter and she's had some good success. She's shown all the way through to Grand Prix and has a couple of young horses that she's developing now. And uh, there have been lots of proud moments there. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there's really too many single moments, I think, to, to yeah. really, uh, I think what, what makes you into who you are, I think is a lot of these moments yes. put together, right? And uh, like I said, I've been fortunate to have had lots of, good horses and, and good owners and uh, good teams behind me and uh, still continue to have that. And uh, yeah, that's really how I feel about it. 
Yeah. And coming up, um, when thinking about the people that have mentored you or coaches that you have had, is there any important pieces of advice or philosophies that you've kind of absorbed from other riders that have stayed with you throughout your career? Uh, Tamina, any particular philosophies? Yeah. Mean, Where do you pull your inspiration from as a student? I know we're okay. all learning um, constantly in this sport, yeah. as you mentioned right at the beginning. So is there anything that you really like to kind of pull your inspiration from or, or coaches or mentors you've had over the years that you'd like to emulate? Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of different people that I've trained worth over the years and that I still go to and get help. Uh, so when I'm in Florida, I do, uh, you know, have, have a couple of people that I get help there. But I think the, the biggest person that had the most influence, I would say, has been a friend of mine. His name is Norbert Van Lark. He's a German fella. And uh, we're good friends. And he's come over, not, not so much lately, but for some time, he was actually also the Canadian team coach. Mm -hmm. And for quite some time, he would come to my barn here and do clinics and help me uh, with my horses. And I think I learned a lot from him, probably the most, you know, in, in how to develop horses, how to, you know, how, how to um, read the horses. You know, he's very uh, good with, with uh, you know, always finding the best in the horse and, and not overtraining them. And uh, I think those are all points that I really learned from him and uh, the finer points of riding. And um, yeah, I would say he probably is the, one, the person that I probably learned the most from. Yeah. yeah. Are there any um, issues or topics that are prevalent in the industry that you wished were brought to the forefront more or addressed more? Or even some things that um people may not know about dressage or anything on your mind um i did send in this question but a lot of the times people they either have something specific that comes to mind or or nothing at all so there's no pressure but um anything that you know you wish people addressed more when it comes to horses in the industry or even even dressage specifically um i mean there, there, there are a lot of things i well, I mean, there's nothing really that springs out to me where we say, oh, this is really bad. This was yeah. what we need to improve. But I think as a whole, I think we must find ways to continue educating people at all levels, you know, uh, whether it's the, well, all the people that are involved in the sport, whether it's the riders, the coaches, um, you know, the, the stewards, um, the judges, I think. You know, we, we can, there, there are quite a few programs out there. Uh, you know, we, we now have the certification for the coaches that we have to have this, we now have to be certified to be able to coach at sanctioned shows. And I think that was a great step. You know, we, I think we have a good coaching program uh, through our national federation and also our uh, provincial federation. But I think we still must continue to find more ways of being able to offer more hands-on type education. Like there's a lot you can get online through our federations, but I think, and especially through COVID, it's been tough to get more hands-on kind of education for all of these groups that are, you know, make our sport. Like I said, the judges, the riders, the trainers, the students, the stewards, all, all the people involved. Um, 
I think we just must find more ways and more opportunities for everybody to to learn more. And I think as we, the more we get educated, the better we get. Mm -hmm, for sure. And um, like you mentioned, it's great that there are these programs now that are coming up that are providing those resources. But at the end of the day, it is hard to learn those horsemanship skills when you're not actually, um, you know, in theory, it's great, but then hands-on is a totally different yeah. experience, as you mentioned. So yeah, um, and the, the, uh, and not to interrupt, but the horsemanship is really a big point that we really drive home here at Our Barn uh, to our students and as well to our staff and working students, because I think that's something that is, you know, a little bit got lost in the shuffle. I think that was a uh, you know, many years ago, that was a big thing, I think, in, in, in all disciplines, whether it was jumping or, or dressage or 3D eventing. And I think we've lo lost that a little bit. I have this feeling that, you know, you don't always see the, the true horsemanship of, you know, how to look after your horse and, and how to read a horse in the barn, as well as in the, in the training arena or, you know, how to, yeah, how, how to do everything around the horse from wrapping to mucking to doing everything really i mean what does a good horseman do right it's, it's mm -hmm. learn how to read the horse and how to look after the horse mm -hmm. not just riding i mean riding is just one aspect of horsemanship yeah for sure and that's a topic that comes up all the time um when i talk to professionals is uh perhaps a lack of horsemanship when it comes to people um having their eyes and expectations on competition and not necessarily being in the day-to-day -day in the nitty-gritty which is where in fact that makes I think the difference between someone who's extremely successful with their own horse versus um being limited if you're yeah. involved in that everyday kind of thing it can definitely be a benefit <laughs> when it yeah, comes 100 percent yeah. yeah it is for sure yeah Awesome. Well, I appreciate it so much you taking the time to answer all these questions. I know that um, I, I actually had uh, several people message me and ask to have you on. So just so you know, um, they were really excited to hear your perspectives on. Well, that is nice. That's nice yeah. to hear. And, and yeah, thank you for contacting me. I quite enjoyed this. All right. That is everything for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate your listenership. I am uh, watching my insights closely to see who you are, where you are, what you're listening to, what you're liking and not liking. And like always, I really invite you to give me feedback on the podcast because I want to create it for you. If you have guests or lines of questioning or any kinds of feedback, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. The easiest way is on Instagram at Spring and Eck. Um, if you guys enjoy the podcast, make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen on the platform. Um, and then that just helps those platforms send the podcast to other equestrians that might not have come across it yet. And I really want to get this out to other people and make this community bigger. I'm loving it. I can't wait for a couple episodes that are coming up. I hope that you guys have an awesome day today and I will see you next week.